Derek Schmidt makes his presence felt. He'll be leaned on as the 2021 legislature goes about its work. He jumped into the Texas-born fight over the presidential election. He urged the U.S. Supreme Court to hear an appeal of the state's proof of citizenship law. And he just might run for governor in 2022. He is the Kansas Attorney General. Welcome, sir, to the Kansas Reflector. Thanks, Tim. Great to be on. Thanks for coming. So let's get into some legislative reform ideas. There's been a big effort in the state house to uh, reform the criminal justice system. What there excites you? Well, there's an interim report from the Criminal Justice Reform Commission. Uh, I've, I've been a part of that, a non-voting member by statute uh, for the last year and a half that it's been working. And as I've said before, you know, Kansas does criminal justice reform almost every year. Uh, it, it's been a consistent approach. How can we make the criminal justice system better? I'm excited about some of the recommendations from the Reform Commission here because the focus, unsurprisingly, came back to what we all know, which is if you really want to make a difference in terms of less crime, safer communities, and uh, you know, uh, doing the right thing and giving a second chance to folks that have gone astray, so to speak, you've got to focus on the basics. You've got to focus on substance abuse treatment because so much criminal misbehavior is driven by addiction. And you've got to focus on mental health interventions because so much is driven by uh, mental illness or, or other mental health issues. Those aren't cheap. They aren't easy. But there's no way around the basics. If we want to make a difference, those are the areas we've got to focus. And those are key points that you made a year ago. You were talking about this very same thing a year ago. Absolutely. And I, I think that's, you know, I think it's good that after a year of really taking a look, there are lots of specific recommendations. But in the umbrella, uh, the big issues are substance abuse and mental health issues, and then sort of a third one is reentry issues, you know, just opening the prison door and letting somebody who came from a broken circumstance, committed criminal misconduct, walk out the prison door and go back to that broken circumstance is not the best formula for maximizing, you know, the likelihood of success, and therefore right. no reoffense. Yeah, you're right, and it's going to be expensive, and it's sometimes hard for politicians to, or, to justify to the public spending scarce resources on people that uh, persistently break Kansas law. I mean, you've heard me say it before, and I, you know, I'll keep saying it. I, I really strongly believe the focus of criminal justice reform has to be on less crime, fewer victims. How do you get less crime and fewer victims? That's the whole purpose of the criminal justice system, less crime, fewer victims. Now, the optimal way to do that, the most likely to succeed way, is through substance abuse intervention of those who are committing crimes and hurting victims and mental health intervention with those who are committing crime and hurting victims. No, I think that makes logical sense. It's, you know, figuring that out and then enacting that, making that happen is, is the big challenge. Another issue that's certain to come up in the uh, next legislative session is the governor's emergency management powers. How does the state go about handling a pandemic like we're in right now. I know the legislature this year took some action that uh, the governor did, wasn't really wild about. Uh, so how might uh, the legislature uh, refine that and, and, and advance its approach? Well, I think everybody, whether you're on sort of the civil liberties end of the debate or you're on the public health end of the debate or you're somewhere in the middle trying to do right by both, uh, I think everybody sort of recognizes that our emergency management statutes, while very good, 
really weren't designed for this type of emergency. They weren't designed for a sort of open-ended, year or years long sort of use of emergency powers, not just in a limited geographical area, like where there's a flood or a tornado, but Mm -hmm. all over the state, and not just on things that you can sort of look at the damage and see what you gotta do. A tornado came through, you gotta clean it up and, and, and make it secure. But, you know, on limiting things like, you know, everything from school attendance to business operations, sort of very intrusive. I mean, the statutes weren't designed for that. The way we normally, in ordinary times, balance out all those competing interests is through the usual legislative process. I mean, it's not unusual to have competing interests, mm-hmm. but we have a system to solve it. The emergency management law as it currently stands is designed to bypass that system. That's its whole purpose. And I really think that's sort of the core of some of these ongoing and really passionate disputes. So. You know, I testified at the Interim Legislative Committee back in September. I laid out a bunch of fairly detailed thoughts on things that I recommend they look at uh, changing in the law so that it's more, uh, I don't know if subtle is the right word, but it's more uh, attuned to this sort of disaster. And I hope they'll take a look at it. Certainly, there's reason to refine that statute, given that nobody had anticipated a pandemic of this nature, you know, right. where hundreds of thousands of Americans have died who have been infected. You know, one of the issues that is certain to come up is about business lawsuits, Mm. Uh, businesses that feel like uh, state mandates undermined their their business operation. Are those legitimate? Well, they may be. Uh, You know, there's lots of different theories. The one that's currently been in the headlines is a a lawsuit filed in, I believe it was in Wichita, Sedgwick County, where a group of businesses are arguing that they're entitled to financial compensation. They're not arguing that the state didn't have authority to order them closed to deal with, you know, trying to flatten the curve, so to speak, limit the spread. But they're saying because they bore a disproportionate share of the cost of of supporting the public good of limiting the spread, they were closed, competitors weren't, that sort of thing, that they're in t- it's a taking and they're entitled to compensation. I've been a little bit surprised that issue hasn't presented itself sooner. Uh, There actually is, in the current emergency management law, a provision that contemplates compensation. Hmm. But it's, you know, like everything else, many other things in the law, it wasn't written for this sort of circumstance. And so there's an issue, whether it applies here or doesn't, that's what will be litigated in that case. My own view is the bigger issue here is, as a matter of public policy, should there be a mechanism for compensation? And I think the answer to that at a philosophical level is yes, there should. If, if some bear a disproportionate cost of serving the public good, and they don't have a choice, they're ordered by the government to do it, there ought to be some mechanism that acknowledges that disproportionate share. In a sense, it's not different from if there's a wildfire on my neighbor's property and the emergency manager want to come and plow out my you know, fence rows and crops in order to stop it from spreading to my other side neighbor, I'm entitled by law to compensation for that damage because I'm serving the public good. Mm-hmm, the, the, the devil's in the details, right? I mean, how do you do that that doesn't that also bankrupt? could be very expensive. Absolutely. And so that's, in my view, that's why it makes the most sense to sort this out, not in the courts, but in the legislature. What should the public policy be? something more simple like wearing masks? You know, there's a hell of a lot of people out there that don't want to wear a mask, and I think it's their liberty interest not to do so. Uh, do you think... Uh, a legislature or the the executive could order every citizen in Kansas to wear a mask. Well, they have, right? I mean, well, they've the governor's it's basically that order a recommendation uh, because at a different level of government, sheriffs or county commissions say we're not going to do that. Yeah. We're not going to enforce that. Good luck. 
Well, and also under the architecture of current Kansas law, there is that sort of opt-out mechanism. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was created in June. It still applies. So, you know, do I think that at the end of the day, there there ultimately can be a power of government to uh, order a public health mitigation method like that? Yeah, I do. Do I think that our current law, um, you know, gives that power either to the governor alone or to um, uh, other officials alone? No, I don't. And, you know, the bottom line is we're sitting here debating, as, as we need to, what are the remedies, what's the consequence, do you arrest people, do you ticket people, do you sue people, or do you, do you not? It would just be so much easier if everybody would just choose to wear a mask, which is good public health advice regardless of what the law requires. Yeah. Part of me struggles with this because I could be running around spreading a deadly virus and uh, people are paying the ultimate price for my sense of liberty there's got to be a line there. Absolutely. There does. And you know, there if is. If I'm radioactive and I'm just spewing, uh, you know, deadly vibes on people, you, somebody should be able to stop me. You know, if you look at how the laws developed in this area in Kansas, uh, you go back to, for example, some of the tuberculosis outbreaks in the early 20th century. That's where a lot of this case law was developed. Uh, and there, it's really a pretty settled area of law that, uh, uh, the government at some level has the authority to order me, for example, if I am uh, infected and potentially affecting other people with tuberculosis or whatever, uh, to do extraordinary things, to stay at home, to be quarantined, whatever. What makes this uh, current situation somewhat different, at least from the standpoint of those who you know, argue the other side of the legal question is, here, because of the nature of this pandemic and because of its widespread nature, as well as its sometimes asymptomatic nature, the, you know, the public health recommendation is everybody has to be ordered to do these things, whether you're infected or not. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying the government has no authority to do that. I'm just saying that does present a somewhat different question than you know the, the fairly settled question, if I'm infectious, I can be ordered to do things that don't infect other people. Mm-hmm. I want to shift gears a couple issues that just kind of have a personal interest in, Mr. Mm-hmm. Attorney General, I'm going to ask <laughs> you about. And that is, one of them is the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And I realize the majority of the people that have been sentenced to death in Kansas are actually white men, uh, but there is a concern that the legal system, uh, all the way up to the death penalty, has a racial component to it. Like, who gets charged? Who gets charged with capital murder? Who gets prosecuted? And who gets sentenced to death? Uh, I think, in in terms of a national uh, conversation, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, it's obviously part of a national conversation, and Kansas is not immune from that. the death penalty has a unique body of law that surrounds it uh, in Kansas, but also nationally. If you look at, as we have, of course, you know all the Supreme Court cases that tell us about the death penalty. And, and if you boil those all down, here is what the court cases generally say. It's true that death is different, as the phrase goes, that it's treated differently uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, can't go back. Can't go back. Uh, and it's treated differently in the law for the same reasons. And, and here's the important point, death penalty cases must be individualized. Um, You know, particularly in the sentencing phase, uh, the the court's cases are very consistent that there's not a uniform, rigid rule that applies to all of them other than every defendant gets the opportunity to present to a jury of their peers any evidence and mitigation that they may want to present um, to make the case on why they should not be subject to that ultimate penalty. And, And I 
I think I have the same approach to looking at these cases. These are individualized cases in a way that other cases in the legal system may not be. And I think that's especially true in Kansas, where we have very few death penalty cases. I think we only have currently 10 people under sentence of death. I think that's right. And it um, should be noted, these gentlemen committed some of the most heinous crimes imaginable. Horrific. And if you, you want to have a poster guys for the death penalty, uh, there's some people in Kansas that would fit that description. I think by my count, those 10 men have killed two dozen people. You know, back to, to my approach to it, um, I, I think these cases are each individualized. And I, as, as I've said before, you've heard me say before, I feel comfortable that the capital murder statute, the death penalty, are, have been properly applied in each of them. And as you point out, uh, you know, even if you were to look at them in the aggregate, Kansas doesn't have sort of a disproportionate application to uh, racial minorities, for example. And mm -hmm. so, uh, in and the actually, Kansas context, hasn't executed anybody. Also true. The, the the nation allowed the death penalty again. Well, you are a, a state senator from Independence, and you've. Uh, been elected twice, Attorney General? Three times. Three now. It's hard times. to believe. Oh, how it's hard flies. to believe. I know Good it Lord. does. I know a lot of politicians are aspirational, and I'm kind of curious if you're going to run for governor. You know, I think let's save that conversation for another day, maybe next year at some point. Obviously, I've, you know, taken a look at it. How about in it. like two weeks? Are you going to but, announce uh, in two weeks? Uh, I think that's a conversation for another day. Okay. It is an intriguing idea, intriguing possibility. You're a, you've operated in the state house and the legislature, and and I know when Governor Brownback came from the United States Senate, he was very excited about being governor because it's really kind of tough in D.C. to get anything done that kind of has your name on it. He was very excited to sign bills. I remember him chirping about couldn't wait to veto a bill, and he got to make appointments, he got to make changes. So you're in charge of a state, and there's a lot of of influence you can have on the process and people. So it's an intriguing job. It is, as are a lot of you know senior jobs in public service in Kansas. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed serving as attorney general. I have fun almost every day. Can't say every day, but almost every day. Um, but, you know, time passes and you make decisions. We'll, we'll see what happens. It does seem suited for you. As attorney general, you signed on with others to this Texas case in which... Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said, told you to get lost, but uh, the idea was that uh, you would challenge the presidential outcome in selected states. Why in the heck did you get involved in that? So, you know, Kansas actually joined on with Missouri, and I think it was 15 other states, uh, an amicus brief asking the court to take this Texas lawsuit and decided they decided not to do that. Our focus in that brief was the same as we focused on since right after Election Day. I think there is an unanswered and important question of federal constitutional law that's been presented in some states in this election. Whether it affects the outcome or not, it's an important question that I'd like to have an answer to. Here's the issue. So the federal constitution says, actually in two different places, that the times, places, and manner of federal elections, a presidential election, um, are to be determined by the states, and then it has a phrase that references by the legislatures thereof. It's one of the few references in the federal constitution that specifically refers to internal state operations. The legislature of the state is to determine the time, place, and manner of elections. Okay. So the question is this. Um, in Pennsylvania, for example, uh, whether it affects the outcome or not, set that issue aside. 
What happened is the legislature in Pennsylvania enacted a statute that said mail-in ballots in order to count must be received at the election office by close of business on election day. That's their deadline. There's no dispute that that's what the Pennsylvania statute says. So this is not an issue where different folks read it differently. There's no dispute. That's what the statute the legislature enacted says. But a group of folks who wanted a different outcome went to the state courts in Pennsylvania and argued, look, because of COVID, all the disruptions related to the election, even though that's what the statute says, we think a different rule is required. And we want the court, the state court, to order, using its equitable powers, a departure from that otherwise clear statute and allow ballots that were mailed in before the election, but that arrive up to three days after the election to be counted. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with allowing late arriving mail ballots to be counted. Kansas does. Mm -hmm. But the difference is in Kansas, the legislature made that decision and wrote it into the statute. The legislature thereof set that manner of election under the federal constitution. In Pennsylvania, the legislature said, got to have it in by election day. And the court said, despite that, we are going to substitute our judgment for the legislature. And the question is, is that merely a fight for Pennsylvania, because it's kind of an internal state issue, or is that a fight for everybody who votes in a presidential election or whose citizens do, because we're all supposed to play by the same federal rules, and the federal rules as the legislature, not the courts, uh, set it. I think it's an interesting question. So that's a linkage for an attorney general in Kansas to weed Absolutely. into that, the Texas case and others. And I would, yes, and I would still like to see an answer to that uh, even though, you know, at this point, it, it's not going to affect the outcome of the current election. But if that question isn't answered now, uh, you know, these questions about, uh, it's called the electors clause, the electoral college and its operations, generally speaking, they only arise once every four years because they only arise when we have a presidential election. So if we don't get an answer now. This is a question that's likely to recur four years, eight years, 12 years. I understand that. It sounds like a legitimate question, but also part of the concern is that you're you're piggybacking on a lot of absurd claims that seem to undermine our electoral process and have created a lot of anxiety for people. I just I just wonder if you're contributing to that and and does that give you qualms? Well, I think people on both sides have very strong feelings. Yes. And I think President Trump has been a a person who people either love or hate. And that's been reflected, I think, in this election. Uh, you won't be surprised. I've heard from thousands of people. Last time I checked, we were at around 20,000 communications on this you in the last to, week. People tried to advise you on this. On both sides. You've got some that think that, uh, you know, I absolutely had to do this. And you've got others that think, how dare I do this? Now, you know, I don't make legal decisions based upon how many emails we get. Mm -hmm. But as I already suggested, I think there's a real legal question here that ought to be answered. And obviously, as a public official, I'm mindful of those communications. Seems like if Joe Biden had done all this stuff that Trump has done, he would be viewed and scorned as a very sore loser, just highly inappropriate. I'm not sure why, the, just because you have the word president in front of your name, you should get away with this stuff. You know, it's an interesting point, Tim. There have been six presidential elections in the United States during the 21st century. Four of those six have been loudly and emotionally disputed for months or in some cases years after the election day in November. Mm -hmm. In 2000, you had Bush versus Gore, which Huge. was ultimately decided by the U.S. Supreme yes. Court. Interestingly, um, the anniversary, the 20-year anniversary of that decision came one day after the Supreme Court 
essentially decided this election by deciding not to hear the Texas case. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, time-wise, uh, this year really wasn't out of whack with what happened in 2000, okay. and I think people need to respect the court. In 2004, uh, you may recall this, it's sort of faded from a lot of memories, but uh, that was the George W. Bush reelect against John Kerry. It was a fairly close election, and there were a lot of people who felt strongly that there had been procedural irregularities in Ohio, so much so that the Democrat staff on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee actually produced an investigative report. You can Google it and find it out there on the web today, identifying all of these irregularities that they think led to the wrong outcome in Ohio. They aren't exactly the same things that people are complaining about for Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Michigan or whatever this time, but it's the same kind of thing, same kind of emotion, same kind of argument. Along came 16, and um, you know there was a significant population of the country that didn't accept Donald Trump as having been legitimately elected, not just through the electoral college system, for the first three years of his presidency, resulting not just in political you know, bumper was that, stickers. Was that about anger, the electoral process or that you just didn't like him? It was about, well, part of the, you'll remember the, um, uh, obviously just a year ago now, the the uh, impeachment and mm-hmm. the House to remove him from office and the trial in the Senate. And some of those claims related to conduct back in the 2016 election, the okay. whole Russia hoax and all that kind of stuff, yeah. collusion. So my Maybe only all point this is, craziness has just been building over time and this is just a consequence of it. And I do think one thing that makes it uh, more pronounced as we go along, which I don't think is healthy, but you know it's the world we live in. Uh, you know the ability to communicate instantly and widely on social media is no question. You know, putting a megaphone to things that otherwise would have been perhaps whispered, and and Good here point. we are just trying to wrestle with it. So, mm-hmm. all that's by way of saying, you know, there's a process. The process is playing itself out. We took you know one step into that, but ultimately we're. We, we got an answer. The Electoral College has voted, and the country's going to move on. Let's flip to another page. The U.S. Supreme Court decided not to hear the Kansas appeal mm-hmm. of the um, the Kansas law requiring proof of citizenship uh, to to register and to vote, and that was struck down by a federal court in Kansas. and And so you sought uh, to have the Supremes look at it. Um, that was more than just trying to get another trip to D.C., right? Right. So. You know, that statute was passed by a very large bipartisan majority in both the state house and the state senate. Um, People who now are vehemently and publicly opposed to it voted for it. Mm. And and I get it. Things change over time. Mm. But nonetheless, uh, you know, I view my job as attorney general to defend the statutes that are duly enacted in this state unless there's just no basis for a defense. And that is your job or is that your interpretation of the job? Do you have a, an obligation to defend the state or can you ch- pick and choose? I think I have an obligation to defend or provide a defense for state statutes that are duly enacted okay. unless there's just no credible defense. For example, you know, I conceded on this is a little thing, but it, it illustrates your point. There, there was an old statute from the 1960s that prohibited um, certain types of advertisement for raw milk of all things. Yeah, and yeah. you know the the U.S. Supreme Court's case law on commercial speech, which is what that is, developed substantially since the 60s. There's mm-hmm. case law that clearly makes that. Uh, impermissible in violation I'm of the First Amendment. I'm aware of this case. I'm all over that. And so, you know, ultimately I concluded on that. There just was no plausible defense. Um, but that's not the case on the proof of citizenship statute. Whether people like the policy, don't like the policy, at the end of the day, um, 
you know, there were significant and unanswered constitutional questions, uh, particularly the 14th Amendment question, which was one of the two that was presented. Um, and, you know, if the legislature or others didn't want us to defend their law, they had the ability to repeal it, and they do didn't th- do it. Do you think the legislature can address this? Is, uh, is there a fix out there, or is it just too, a bridge too far? I don't know. I think the dust needs to settle um, now, and you know, ultimately the ball is going to be back in the legislature's court. Uh, they now have a, an inoperable, at least partially inoperable, statute on the books. And, you know, it appears to me that their basic options are just leave it there. It's enjoined. It, you know, it's invalid. Or just repeal it or replace it with something different. And they're going to have to make that decision which path they choose. Talk about repeal and replace the Affordable <laughs> Care Act, the ACA. Uh, you're part of a legal challenge of that, correct? Right. A baseline federal law. Right. You, you could be part of uh, a movement that strips how many people in Kansas have health insurance through the ACA? Many. Thousands. Right. Oh, yeah. That's certainly true. But the, um, you know, the issue there is, uh, th- let me back up. This is the, what, third or fourth round now of challenges to different parts of the ACA. Mm-hmm. Um, we've won some. We've lost some. We won in the first round the spending clause issue that um, uh, made the Medicaid issues a state-by-state choice as opposed to a federal mandate. Uh, and we lost in the first round on the uh, individual mandate issue where the court said, yeah, it's not really a Commerce Clause authority that lets the federal government do this, but the Tax Clause authority does. Um, the current case, uh, again, I think is interesting from a legal standpoint. Congress repealed the tax penalty for the individual mandate. They zeroed it out. It's actually what they did. It's technically still on the books, but the dollar amount of the penalty is zero. Got it. But the mandate is still there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the federal law still says, unless you're otherwise exempt, you and I, we got to go out in the marketplace, we got to buy this insurance product. But if we don't, they're going to penalize us zero dollars. I know it's a bizarre circumstance, but mm-hmm. that's the current state of the law. What I think is an interesting question in all of this, and where I hope you know we ultimately come down, I've always been interested in uh, getting a U.S. Supreme Court decision that essentially reaffirms that part that we won back in uh, the 2012 case, the first ACA case. You know, if the only basis for Congress to issue this naked command of thou shalt go out and buy this product that's congressionally favored, if the only basis for that in the Constitution is the tax clause, and if a tax is then set at zero, which there's case law that says that means Mm -hmm. it's not a tax, does that mean that there is no basis in federal law for Congress to directly order Americans to conduct themselves in a certain way if they can't identify authority for that in federal law? I know that's sort of, you know, for a lot of folks, it's sort of an inside baseball thing, and it's not what you see in the political ads, and it's not what you see, you know, in the sort of the passionate debate about current policy. But look, since uh, really the FDR period, since the court packing plan in the 1930s, where, you know, FDR was so frustrated, I'm going to show my own philosophical, you know, approach here, that the court was actually following the Constitution as written and not giving him the outcomes yeah. on policy that he wanted. He yeah. was so frustrated, he threatened to pack the court in order to get his way, and then the court sort of cowered to that mm. and started to accept things. We have an opportunity for the first time in two generations to say in this space, there is a constitutional limit on federal power. We really meant it. Here's the wall on this end. Here's the wall on this end. And for me, at least, that is hugely important. Back to an earlier conversation we had, especially when we're looking at things like the, the enormous growth of the administrative state since the New Deal. 
I want to know there's a limit on the federal government's power. And I think this gives us that opportunity. That's really interesting. Uh, the final question I have for you is uh, <clears throat> more fun, perhaps. I'm just kind of curious about what it's like to be attorney general. Is it more L.A. law? Uh, show my age, I guess. Or is it like uh, living in a law library all day? So it depends on the day. It's not like L.A. law, but it's a great job. I mean, that's kind of the succinct part of it. Look, I often say uh, when people ask that, if you're a person that loves public service, if you love the political process because it is an elected job, mm -hmm. and if you love practicing law, if those three things are important to you, this is the absolutely perfect job. I mean, on any given day in the office, uh, you know, I may be, have my door shut, have Westlaw up, and I'm down in the weeds on some esoteric legal issue that I think is fascinating, and most Kansans, you know, just they're not talking about it at the coffee shop. On another day, I may be, you know, out doing the more public official part of the job, if you will, where you're interacting with Kansans, getting their sense of what's going on. I mean, kind of the elected official role. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, on another day, I'm a, I'm a public agency head, right? I mean, I, you know, get You've to... You've argued before lead. the Supreme Court in D.C.? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, is, uh, it is a terrific job if you like the types of things I really enjoy. So you're talking about the breadth of the legal profession. You kind of get to touch four bases, uh, whereas if you were in a legal practice, you might be a criminal defense attorney. More narrow. So that's one of yeah. the aspects of it that makes it appealing. Yeah, a lot of times when we're, you know, for example, recruiting staff, attorneys to work at the AG's office, that's one of the things we'll point out to them. It's, you know, there are very few opportunities in private practice for a breadth of practice that even approaches the types mm -hmm. of issues we get to work on. We might one day be working on helping interpret the Kansas fence law or the egg law. Yeah. And on the next day, you know, working on a brief on uh, federal preemption in the immigration or employment space in preparation for an argument at the U.S. Supreme Court and everything in between. So it's great. You know, it's um, we have really been fortunate. We've had a very good working relationship with the governors that we've worked with uh, since I've been there. I'm on my third now. Uh, and with the legislators and legislative leaders we've worked with. And they also have turned over since I've been there. And we've been able to, you know, obviously we have our disagreements on, on issues and our approaches from time to time, but we've been able on things that uh, are just kind of fundamental to really kind of work together and, and build up some of the strengths of the office. And I, I think that's good. I think it's good for the state over the long term, and, and uh, I hope Kansans agree with that. Mr. Attorney General Derek Schmidt, thanks for joining us on the Kansas Reflector. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate your interest.